Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Mate. Joining me is Simona Mangiante Papadopoulos. She is an attorney, a former EU legal advisor, and the lead interviewer on the new documentary film, Ukraine, the Everlasting Present, which is the third in the trilogy that began with the Oliver Stone produced film, Ukraine on Fire, recently censored by YouTube. This is a bit of the trailer of Ukraine, the Everlasting Present. How much of the modern Ukraine is controlled by the United States? Я думаю, что полностью. Мені здається, що Захід не може завершити жодної справи. You and I have witnessed one of the greatest dramas of the 20th century. Я ніколи не думав, що таке може прийти. Оце саме страшне. Що празднує? І всіх українців з праздником. Simona, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us about this documentary that you took part in. You went to Ukraine, interviewed key political figures. What are you trying to accomplish with this film that has just been released? We try to understand uh, actually the history of uh, Ukraine from the uh, Declaration of Independence for the Soviet Union and make an overall assessment of the results of this independence. Was really independent or uh, this uh, geopolitical strategic position where the West meet the East uh, made of it a sort of client states to leverage Russian influence on the West? This was the key question we dig into uh, in the course of this documentary, which walks the audience uh, through the uh, critical and crucial events that unfortunately resulted in a war today with Russia. I didn't know, obviously, last summer that uh, the outcome would be that tragic, but definitely help uh, people understanding the genesis of this war. And uh, it's not about uh, teaming up with Russia or Ukraine, it's about understanding. Unfortunately, what I notice uh, in the media, mostly in the mainstream media, is a tendency to um, simplify the situation, just uh, building up the image of an enemy and uh, completely ignoring the dynamics behind the events that we are assisting to today. Um, Ukraine is a very interesting country, was the most uh, prosperous Soviet Republic. Uh, uh, its history is marked by bloody revolutions at sea and heavy involvement of agencies from the West. Now, these are facts uh, and uh, they need and they deserve to be looked into to actually um, understand better the situation we are living today. I can mention a few of these events, uh, trying to simplify as much as I can now, an history which is dense of uh, um, political uh, aspects, interferences from the West and the East as well. That's a, I would just, just to take this a step back uh, into the censorship we are assisting to right now. Uh, we know that uh, the same Ukraine on fire and the revealing Ukraine, which are masterpiece in this trilogy, uh, led by Oliver Stone, have been banned by Amazon. So right now uh, we know that big tech media trying to shadow uh, all the voices that are out of the core. In reality, I invite everybody to actually have a real perspective, not into siding, it's not a football team. We're not talking about uh, Russia against Ukraine. Everybody, I think, convene uh, about the tragedy of the image we, we look at uh, into the news. Uh, but it's a matter of understanding and uh, not necessarily lab labeling everyone who tries to understand as a, a propagandist or worse, a Russian propagandist. Yeah, and winter uh, or, or Ukraine on fire, which, I, which I've seen, it does a great job of that. It, um, 
I mean, I think it, the only criticism of it is that it sort of downplayed the corruption of Yanukovych, the president who, who was overthrown. But aside from that, there was a coup in 2014, and that played such a critical role in this uh, war we're seeing now, where the U.S. has been trying to basically use Ukraine as a pawn in its geopolitical amb ambitions to weaken Russia, instead of acknowledging and, and letting Ukraine just be neutral and recognizing the fact that Ukraine is a very divided country, that while there are people who loathe Russia and want to be a part of the U.S.-led orbit, there are many people in Ukraine who don't feel that way. And so the answer in that situation is obviously to keep it neutral, not try to push it to one side. And I think a refusal to let Ukraine be neutral is what helps explain why it's now going through this catastrophe. I'm wondering your thoughts on that, the the division of Ukraine and, and the voices of Ukrainians who were not allowed to hear inside the West because they don't go along with this with this U.S.-led narrative that everybody in Ukraine despises Russia and wants to be a U.S. colony. Absolutely. Thanks for this very interesting question. Actually, you mentioned the first uh, bloody revolution, which is notorious as Orange Revolution, that saw uh, the pro-Russian Yanukovych president, pro-Russian president Yanukovych, overthrown in favor of President Yushchenko, which you know to be uh, a pro-Western president, very much sympathizing with uh, um, political leaders in the West. And uh, we can look at pictures of Yushchenko with uh, Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton, and many other political leaders. Now, why I make this point, it's precisely to uh, connect with what you say, the interference of the West in Ukraine to trigger those revolutions which are officially presented as uh, uh, people, um, uh, discontent toward having a pro-Russian uh, leader, but in reality saw uh, the massive interference of agency from the West, including the CIA, and we have uh, witnesses and evidence of the, these things happening. Uh, my uh, opinion is even, this, this fact happened later on 2014 in the Euromaidan where another bloody revolution was officially triggered by people rebelling to the halt in the negotiation between the European Union and Ukraine. Now, do we really believe that such a bloodshed, such a violent protest in the streets can be triggered by uh, the halt in a, the negotiation between EU and their leader. Of course, there is something um, highly unlikely. Uh, then we had the opportunity to talk about the identity problems in Ukraine with precisely uh, President Yushchenko, who we know being a nationalist, who we know uh, being a supporter of the people's movement, and the under whose presidencies we see the affirmation of Zvodoba. I had the chance to make a very interesting question to uh, President Yushchenko, and it's basically why he granted the title of uh, uh, national hero to Roman Shakovich. I should correct my pronunciation. Now we know Roman Shukovich, uh, is uh, somebody known in the Second World War to cooperate with the Nazi Germans. Uh, there is a, a very interesting uh, discussion. I, I see the table with Yushchenko among, for at least five hours. And he was explaining to me basically how this uh, uh, nationalistic uh, feeling that we, um, that endorsed by the Nazi, Ukrainian Nazi, de facto, uh, are those who build up the idea of a uh, Ukraine as uh, an independent uh, country, um, using uh, as unifying idea, the confrontation with Russia. Nevertheless, we know uh, the cultural roots shared by these two realities are, are deeper than that. And there are many people who feels 
uh, belonging to Russia, Crimea, for example, we know they were a democratic, when we talk about the democracy, we know people express their will to belong to Russia. They feel Russians. Uh, everywhere in Ukraine, including uh, other areas than the East, uh, more known for being like uh, pro-Russians, uh, uh, having a, sense, a sentiment of belonging to Russia, they currently speak Russian. Uh, we are forcing in some area this sense of identity, which radicates mostly into this uh, people's movement, the, the, the Ukrainian Nazi. That's why sometimes I think people in the mainstream media misunderstand what denazification really means. We have to look at the origins of these people movements, origins of Svodoba, and understand that the ones who supported the, the Nazi in Ukraine were precisely the ones supported by the West, the pro-Western leaders like Yushchenko. Plan for people. So Svoboda, the party you mentioned, that's a far right uh, party inside of Ukraine, played an integral role in the 2014 Maidan coup. It was founded under a different name, actually, a name that harkens back to uh, the Nazi party, um, but then changed its name to Svoboda. I think it's around Svoboda, the yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, and then you mentioned also this Maidan massacre where. Just as there was a, a compromise being brokered, led by uh, the European Union, to essentially end the Maidan uh, protests and keep Yanukovych in power, but curtail his authority and hold new elections very, very quickly, Yanukovych agreed to that power-sharing agreement with the opposition. The opposition yeah. goes back to the Maidan. They share this with the far-right leaders of the Maidan encampment, and the, and the far-right says, no way, this guy has to go. And shortly after that, there's a massacre uh, where snipers kill people in the Maidan. It was blamed on Yanukovych's forces. Um, yes. But uh, there's been research done, especially by a Ukrainian scholar at the University of Ottawa named Ivan Kachanovsky, that I think shows conclusively that actually the sniper fire came from the pro-Maidan side. And there's even a leaked recording uh, between top European officials in which they discussed that actually the suspicion is that this was per perpetrated by the Maidan uh, coup plotters, not by Yanukovych's forces. And that's why presumably eight years later, there's been no investigation, no serious investigation done inside Ukraine, no indictments for it. So it seems to Absolutely. me that this wasn't an incident to incite exactly what happened, which is um, after the uh, power sharing agreement was reached, Yanukovych's forces withdrew as part of that agreement, and the far right took advantage of that and basically threatened violence and forced Yanukovych to flee. And that's when we had a new government installed, which happened to be led by a guy named Yatsenyuk, who we know was the guy chosen by Victoria Nuland in that leaked yes, phone call. So there's, exactly. there's a lot we don't know because we haven't, you know, because there's just things like we don't know uh, what we don't know. But on the surface, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that this was a, a, a coup with U.S. backing. Absolutely. And uh, precisely in this documentary, we walk people through this, uh, uh, highlight these things that are overshadowed by certain powers. And uh, it's very interesting to hear those facts by the people who deny them. Because, for example, Yushchenko is, I challenge Yushchenko on this. But of course, his narrative was 
pretty much different, but at the same time, we uh, provide uh, other um, inter uh, other information from uh, other very uh, controversial uh, individuals, including uh, Andrew Derkash, Deputy Derkash, who is uh, uh, who had the chance, uh, the opportunity to, to interview, and we know being uh, wanted uh, by the United States for uh, his attempt to expose Biden affairs in Ukraine. And uh, he also explained to me uh, pretty much in detail the corruption scheme with Burisma and how de facto uh, Ukraine turned into a client state of the United States. If we think that Joe Biden at the time he was vice president under Obama had the power to uh, ask the Ukrainian parliament to overthrow, to fire a prosecutor looking into his uh, son dossier. So they are all facts that actually show a big presence of the West and the United States in Ukraine uh, and also the European Union on the other side. It looks like this uh, um, land has been weaponized uh, to leverage indeed the Russian influence, but they made a lot of promises to Ukraine that they didn't maintain. So uh, today we have Zelensky, which is using uh, basically this uh, emergency war situation to make reckless requests like joining NATO uh, or uh, access accessing to the EU bloc as uh, a response to um, Russian attacks. But we should know better that this is nothing, this should not be the response and it's completely reckless to even present the requested way did if somebody from the west from the us um and other nato states were to say to you what what are we missing about ukraine what is not being told to us what is the most important thing for us to know about the context behind this war in ukraine that we're not being given what would you tell them well, I would tell them, first and foremost, to dig into this uh, uh, nationalism uh, that uh, radicates in these parties and uh, leaders that are welcomed by the West and uh, endorsed by the West to actually emphasize this problem and uh, triggered and put fire on uh, an issue rather than resolving it. And to understand the history and interference of the West, of our interference in this beautiful, wonderful country, I had the chance to know, and that it's basically triggering a situation where Putin's interests, of course, on the other side have been threatened. And we have to understand that without any, making any apology or any propaganda, the situation for what it is. So uh, we have to, I would like to remind to the people from the West that uh, uh, propaganda is something that we are really much very good experts at, uh, starting from uh, the Russia collusion that uh, saw me involved in first uh, place. So I know what I'm talking about in many ways and also building up the image of uh, Russia and Putin as a demon to finally uh, simplifying a situation like that uh, with, uh, look, it was the demon we were portraying him to be. Look what he's doing, showing a horrible, atrocious image that, of course, touched the arts of everybody. But uh, we contributed to cause that. Uh, reality is very different and we should truly uh, watch the content that is now banned, starting from Ukraine on fire to this uh, last documentary from Igor Lopatonak. I think it's very instructive, but besides the documentary, really dig into the history of the country without uh, the filter of the mainstream narratives. In your new documentary, it's on YouTube. It also is aired on RT. Yes, and translated in seven languages uh, since October. But RT, is uh, now, but RT is now banned in many countries, in, in Europe, especially yeah uh, so oh. i yes it, it's banned so most of the people can't have access to this documentary from uh, uh the united states or even most of the uh, european countries 
so it's uploaded on YouTube. I posted it in my Twitter page and uh, uh, I invite uh, people first and foremost to watch uh, these masterpieces that precede that, which are Ukraine on Fire and Revealing Ukraine, really. I think they're really interesting and dense of uh, uh, facts, uh, uh, works. But let me ask you about Russiagate because you you are a central uh, uh, figure in, in Russiagate. You are the wife of George Papadopoulos and he, George Papadopoulos is the uh, former Trump campaign volunteer who, according to the official story, triggered the entire Trump-Russia probe because the FBI in late July 2016 opened up its investigation of the Trump campaign after getting a tip from Australia that Papadopoulos had told someone that Russia might have damaging information on Hillary Clinton that it could use to help the Trump campaign. Now, we learned way later on that the tip the tr that the FBI got was incredibly vague, that what it said about George Papadopoulos, your husband, is that he had suggested some kind of suggestion of Russian help. It was very, very vague and no mention of the stolen emails that are at the heart of Russiagate. So I don't buy the FBI's official story that they opened up the investigation based on your husband, George Papadopoulos's apparent comments. But regardless, that's what happened. And um, you, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, you introduced George to Joseph Massoud, who is- No. No, okay. No, so, sorry, I correct you right now. Right, uh, we happen to work- oh, Let yeah. me just explain who, then, then yeah. who Joseph Massoud is, and, and then you can correct me. Joseph mm -hmm. Massoud is apparently this person uh, who George Papadopoulos met in the spring of 2016, and apparently told George about some kind of Russian help for the uh, Trump campaign. And uh, so, I, I have read that it was you who introduced George to him, but that's but but that's false. Well, uh, I didn't introduce uh, Mifsud to George. I knew Mifsud for much longer than George. While I was working at the European Parliament, he was an activist uh, in the socialist group. Um, it, actually, George and I happened to work for the same company, the London Center of International Law Practice, where Mifsud was a director. So we met him independently from each other. So I didn't introduce Mifsud to George. I just happened to know Mifsud and his connection much before him. So that's in this contest that I testified three times to the FBI, the Congress and the Senate of the United States, sharing information I had about Mifsud. Now, of course, all the situation with the Russia gate, uh, it's fake. Uh, if it was triggered by my husband talking with Joseph Mifsud about uh, dirt on Hillary Clinton that he supposedly would have transmitted uh, to any other person in the campaign, which he didn't and he denied doing, uh, where is Joseph Mifsud now? We know this person disappeared from Art. We don't know him dead or alive, uh, which is, of course, a very suspicious uh, fact. One of the things I testified, I can share it with you, is that Joseph Mifus was an active socialist and was campaigning for Hillary Clinton in 2016 in Philadelphia. This, of course, makes it highly unlikely uh, that he would uh, set up a member of the team, Trump team, to help uh, Trump to win the election, offering some sort of dirt. Of course, it was uh, at the in the best scenario was a setup, but in the worst, we don't know. Definitely was not somebody working with the Kremlin to help Trump win the election. This is something that has been completely debanked and it's out of any reasonable ground now that we look 
at the facts uh, from far. <laughs> yes. Uh, as for him campaigning in Philadelphia, I've never heard that, so I can't I can't vouch for that. But what I can say is that Mifsud, after George Papadopoulos told the FBI about him, because the FBI didn't even know about Mifsud apparently until George Papadopoulos. No, exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. After that, Mifsud came to the U.S. in early 2017, and the FBI interviewed him. According to the uh, record of that interview released by the FBI, they barely asked him any questions and they let him go. And Mueller later said in his report that Mifsud had lied to the FBI, but yet they never indicted him for lying. Well, meanwhile, they indicted many other people for allegedly lying. So it's so odd what is going on there. And we can only speculate. But the fact is, if Mifsud is really some Russian agent who told George Papadopoulos that the Russians had dirt on Hillary Clinton, the FBI has certainly never treated him that way because they interviewed him, didn't arrest him, and haven't indicted him since. Exactly. So it's, it's exactly. very curious. And there's all kinds of speculation. I mean, um, but, people, there's speculation that he really is some kind of Western intelligence asset. And again, I've seen no evidence great. for that. So it's all, but do you have any suspicion as to who he actually is and then why he's been, he's been, he's been missing in action for the last uh, six years now uh, or, or five years? He's, he's gone completely dark. Well, definitely somebody can disappear uh, as a physical person in this world, dead or alive. We lost completely track. Uh, this person must have uh, a job, must uh, he, he estranged now from his family. It seems like nobody can track uh, his presence on earth, which is, of course, uh, highly suspicious. Uh, I know for sure that uh, Joseph Mifsud was close to intelligence circles. Uh, he was a professor at the Link campus in Rome, uh, which is uh, known to train uh, intelligence um, uh, people in Italy. Uh, and uh, we know that uh, they are the one who provided to Mifsud uh, uh, living and the place where to live in Umbria, a region in Italy. Uh, two years later, this entire uh, situation was exposed. So uh, that's the last known address of Joseph Mifsud. It's Umbria uh, in a place uh, uh, paid by uh, the Link Campus, or hosted by a professor of the Link Campus. We know the Link Campus being directed by Vincenzo Scotti, who was also minister in Italy, uh, which were, was managing the Italian secret services. So there are many uh, things that make me believe that it was some sort of a Western intelligence uh, asset. Though I don't, I can't, of course, prove it. So that's my understanding, judging from uh, the circles uh, it used to be close to. And uh, that's why I think uh, it's a uh, it's very important. It's, it's actually uh, precisely after I gave my um, testimony about uh, jo my Joseph Mifsud's connection uh, that uh, this uh, sort of smearing campaign about my persona started to take place, saying that I'm not Italian, but Russian, that uh, I'm a Russian agent, uh, et cetera, et cetera. All, of course, uh, has been uh, cleared up and never been even a formal accused of anything, just uh, from the per perception point of view, trying to build up an image. What I think today, when I look at the Russia uh, delusion and uh, the way we are presenting this war in Ukraine is that uh, the image of uh, the Russia of an enemy has been is the result of something that uh, worked to build up the image of it as an enemy. And uh, how much propaganda, how much is not true. It's important to, to have a clean and uh, transparent information. And it's important to have, uh, you know, like podcasts like yours where we can freely discuss about these topics and probably add information to the ones already access, accessed by most. I'm still putting the pieces together, but there is a huge connection between 
uh, Russiagate and the war in Ukraine today. Uh, but before I get into that, let me just ask you quickly. So you were interviewed by the FBI and by Congress back when they were doing their Russia investigations. Have you mm -hmm. or George Papadopoulos been interviewed at all by special counsel John Durham, who was looking now into the origins of Russiagate and the intelligence misconduct that took place? No, none of us. Uh, I believe the records of my interviews and also George testified once to, to Congress are available to John Durham. And uh, I know you already came to Italy uh, to uh, for his own due diligence. So definitely uh, he has he had access to those testimony, but not yet interviewed by him. Yeah. Well, okay, so then just trying, just connecting Russiagate to uh, now this war in Ukraine. So many of the key players in uh, in Russia in Russiagate have have a major role now. And first of all, there was this um, overlooked interference by Ukrainians in the 2016 election when they uh, leaked claims about Paul Manafort to get him fired, and they they leaked this so-called black ledger of these secret payments that he was getting which appear to be frauds. And Ukrainian officials openly admitted, this was in the Financial Times, that they were interfering in the election because they were worried about Trump, because Trump at the time was criticizing NATO and was talking about cooperating with Russia. And Ukrainians who were put in power by the US in the 2014 coup saw this as a threat to them. So they actually, uh, for all the hoopla about Russian interference in the election, it was documented that Ukrainians actually did interfere and they resulted in getting Paul Manafort fired and fueling innuendo about uh, Trump being beholden to the Kremlin. And also that summer, there was a controversy uh, that arose when at the Republican National Convention, there was some there was some proposed platform language in the RNC platform where that was calling for arming Ukraine in its fight against Russia. And some language that called for, you know, th that was more hawkish was rejected. The final platform, which by the way is meaningless, these platforms don't even matter, but anyway, the final platform still called for arming Ukraine and was actually far more um, militarist than the Democratic Party platform was that same summer. But somehow this was turned into a controversy that the Trump campaign had intervened to water down the platform in order to please Russia. And then Christopher Steele in his dossier, he wrote, that this was part of the quid pro quo between Trump and Russia, that Trump was going to stop making Ukraine a campaign issue in exchange for Russian help. And meanwhile, Christopher Steele is very tight with Victoria Nuland. Victoria Nuland, who was the official who helped back the coup in 2014, is now a top official running Biden's policy um, today. And Christopher Steele was sending Victoria Nuland reports about Ukraine. And even before, and this is, gets back to you know, your husband's involvement, even before the FBI opened up the Trump-Russia investigation, Christopher Steele sent Victoria Nuland parts of his dossier. And she exactly. said, this has to go to the FBI. And Victoria Nuland also signed off on an FBI agent who was based in Rome named Mike Gaeta. And I wrote about this recently, and I'll link to this in my oh, uh, segment. She authorized him to go meet with Christopher Steele in early July 2016. And this is weeks before the FBI officially opened up its Trump-Russia probe. So there's a lot of just strange connections there. And just this overall climate, as you're talking about, of demonizing Russia, painting Russia as this enemy, which has the ability to brainwash millions of Americans via social media memes and hacked emails and 
calling alleged Russian hacking the equivalent of 9-11 and Pearl Harbor, as so many top Democratic politicians and pundits have done. All of this, I really do believe, as you say, has set the stage for now. We're in this exactly. hot war where diplomacy with Russia is just off the table. And there is this uh, current, the strong current to encourage even more war and using Ukraine as cannon fodder for all that. Absolutely. And if, if any collusion ever happened, as you mentioned, is Ukrainian collusion who trying to interfere in the uh, US election. We know that even Poroshenko on the record said that Ukrainian had all interest for Hillary Clinton to become president rather than Trump at the time of uh, the, the election, 2016 election. Uh, we know these people are masters in projections. And uh, so uh, we have now access to, to a certain number of elements, fact and evidence so to make our own assessment. Let me ask you also something I forgot to mention before, which is the war in the Donbass that's been going on for eight mm -hmm. years. And people right now are rightly horrified at the civilian toll of Russia's assault on Ukraine, the refugees, civilians being killed, um, all sorts of awful allegations against Russia. But what people don't understand is that this war actually has been going on, or a war in Ukraine has been going on for eight years. And exactly. that is when the people in the Donbass, rebels in the Donbass, took up arms against the uh, US-backed coup government that was waging an assault on essentially Russian heritage inside of Ukraine, banning the Russian language um, and having a government that was dominated in key cabinet positions by the far, by the far right and even some neo-Nazis. So yes. in, in the course of your research inside Ukraine, what did you learn about the war in the Donbass? 14,000 people killed, the majority of them on the rebel-held side and the overlooked reality of what life has been like for people living under this assault. Well, definitely, uh, we have access to information that uh, all these conflicts are uh, caused uh, by the new Nazi and have been uh, weaponized by Zelensky to justify Russian attacks at the border. Uh, we have uh, different type of information coming from uh, investigative journalists like George Allison that I'd like to mention in this podcast because it does, is in the bus and it has a real information over there, which shows a completely different reality. But most importantly, we know this conflict is going on for eight years, but uh, our empathy comes just now. Uh, reality is again very different from what it's portrayed to be, and uh, uh, the this region uh, has been uh, under constant uh, threat of the, the the Ukrainian Nazi. When we're talking about uh, the nationalist movements, and that they are being exploited to justify uh, and to stage uh, a conflict attributed to Russia in, in first place. So. Um, it's, it's a very different type of information. There are, this investigative uh, journalist there that is actually reporting from the region and it's very interesting, uh, it's worth a follow. Uh, but let's uh, talk about again, this uh, uh, world and West concern for protecting democracy without really understanding what's going on. I mean, I'm stunned how Americans already forgot uh, what's happening in Afghanistan. Uh, we uh, reckless uh, withdraw troops from uh, Joe Biden without a real plan, uh, exposing again uh, the Taliban to take over with uh, a, a, a terrible catastrophic things happening right now there. I already forgot that's how people are. They already forget, they embrace a cause and uh, obviously it's always about Russia, but uh, you know, it's, it's pretty poor as uh, <laughs> assessment of our outlook on facts. So Simona, any final words for us as we wrap? 
Well, I would like to thank you uh, for very, this very interesting conversation. I see you're very much, uh, you, you know very well what's going on and it's very enriching to talk to somebody who's actually has, a, has an understanding of uh, the history of Ukraine and the different interests playing there. And uh, I, I would really invite people to uh, not buy into football teams, uh, not thinking with their feelings. Uh, there are many places in the world where democracy at stakes. Uh, this is not... Uh, a war for democracy. This is not uh, uh, Putin uh, imperialistic uh, whims uh, coming up from nowhere and invading Ukraine. It's not crazy as I, I read in a few articles here in Europe. There are many reasons to this conflict that we need to understand. And uh, to understand also how our own responsibilities and how to you know, um, guarantee peace. Peace comes from truth, not from inflaming uh, propaganda wars. and. Uh, uh, I understand that in time of crisis, it's always convenient to build the image of an enemy, but uh, you know, at some point we should ask ourselves this question, is really Russia and Russia only? Just you know, dig into that. By the way, one thing I forgot to mention, because there's just so much, there's so much just to go over, just to underscore what a central role Russiagate has played in this current conflict of today. Right after Russiagate failed, when Robert Mueller gave his testimony in late July 20. 19 and it was a or uh, late July 2019 yeah and it was such a disaster Democrats immediately pivoted to Ukraine gate where they impeached Trump after he paused some weapon sales to Ukraine and of course the allegation was that he was doing that to pressure Ukraine to uh, to spread some dirt about Joe Biden but a major part of that impeachment trial was Democrats embracing this view that we needed to in Adam Schiff's words use Ukraine to, quote, fight Russia over there. And Trump, by briefly uh, impeding that by pausing some weapon sales, was deemed to be this national disaster and a grave threat to the country. So it just it speaks to how important the Ukraine proxy war has been to the bipartisan foreign policy establishment. And now we're seeing the consequence of that by using Ukraine to fight Russia over there. In Adam Schiff's words, now Russia is fighting back to end the fight in a really disastrous and catastrophic way. And that's why it's so important to have dissenting voices like yours who can give people an alternative perspective on how all this is, has come to be. Thank you. It's, it's truly, true, really true. We are uh, using this, uh, any sort of excuses, a pretext, and now we are fighting Russia over there after we build up Russia as the enemy of uh, humanity. And we forgot that the biggest loss of everything is the permanent loss at this point of uh, true peaceful cooperation with Russia, which is still a very, uh, gave a lot to the humankind in terms of technology, science, and a lot of uh, things we should have built on rather than antagonize. Especially since they have nuclear weapons. Yes. Which makes this all the more reckless to, 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 to continue to fuel. Simona Mangiante Papadopoulos, former legal advisor to the European Union, attorney and lead interviewer for the new documentary film, which Hopefully people can still find if it hasn't been censored by the time this goes out and we'll link to it. It's called Ukraine, the Everlasting Present. Simona, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me.